I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. On today's episode, Scott recalls being struck by lightning and getting stuck between Bermuda and New York City. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who's traveled the world, raced international for teens, and crossed the Atlantic countless times, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Hey, Todd, how are we doing today? Ah, we're doing pretty good. So what do we got planned for today's episode? Well, today I'm going to talk about lightning and uh, every every boater's fear of being struck by lightning because the chances of being struck by lightning are much greater on the water than uh, being on land, even though they're still somewhat remote. And uh, I'm going to tell a story about being struck by lightning and what happened and what I had to deal with. So that's, uh, it's an interesting story, I think. Um, it wasn't fun while it was happening, but uh, I did it anyway. Great, take it away. Insurance companies estimate boats have about a one in 1,000 chance of being struck by lightning. Now that's better than Vegas odds. And it doesn't matter whether you have a sailboat or a powerboat. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're in the water or on the hard. Uh, lightning is not particular. And in fact, it's incredibly unpredictable. So what advice can I give and what precautions can you take to survive a strike? That's the question, really. What do experts say? Well, let's start, first of all, that there are no experts. Um, there is, it, 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 the only thing that they can basically say is this, that tall things get struck by lightning and metal attracts electricity. After that, there's no expertise. So there's a couple of anally driven diatribes about how you should ground your mass to keel boats. They will, experts will grumble and argue over grounding plates on the hull. They will get down to the nitty and gritty and, and over the size and the color of your grounding wire attached to your stainless steel fuel and water tanks. They'll all feign expertise about turning your oven into a Faraday box to store your spare VHF radios. In this kind of weird thing, they'll act like, you know, you you don't have any experience and you don't have the intellectual capacity to fathom the complexities of nature. I think all these people are full of shit. Nobody knows or can explain the behavior of lightning beyond the electricity is attracted to tall tall things in metal. Will bonding your boat from stem to stern help? Of course, inasmuch as it will reveal that you're not completely irresponsible when the insurance adjuster comes and says, hey, did you bond your boat? Did you 
have all the grounding plates? Was everything hooked up? And you could show him and say, yeah, except the lightning didn't follow any of that. He'll nod and write you a check and move on. That's it. That's what the, that's what the insurance companies know. There's no predictability. Uh, I have a friend that his boat, I, I think it's still on the internet, brand new boat, anchored in St. Martin, sitting in the bay. He was sitting in a restaurant, literally filming this storm going on. He couldn't avoid it. He was anchored. There was no place to go. And lightning struck his boat, caught the whole thing on fire. It sunk right there. And he was filming. It was one of of maybe a hundred boats that were in the, the harbor. And his wasn't the tallest mast. His wasn't the biggest boat. His wasn't the... You know, the worst boat is a brand new boat. So you don't know. But what I do know, and this is where I kind of get a little upset with the uh, anally retentive crone people, that uh, they'll say, oh, no, 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 you know, it's, uh, you know, you got to have the right, uh, you know, the right cables, and you got to be, you know, you got to have it all hooked up correctly, and the you know, your, your chain plates and keel bolts. And, and they'll say, oh, there's all this really great stuff, you know, like, like, um, you know, your electronics today, you know, and the, if there's a lightning storm coming, you, you want to turn all your electronics off and, and, and hope it doesn't attract uh, any lightning to you. And, and in any way, you know, today's electronics are really grounded um, very efficiently and they can handle a great deal of, of, of electricity coming into it. A lightning bolt has a voltage of a billion volts. A billion volts. Now, I want you to go around your boat and look for that piece of wire, that connection that's going to handle voltage of a billion volts going through it. I mean, what's your largest cable is probably... um, for the most part, is going to be your battery cables. Even if you had gigantic battery cables, could they handle a billion volts? So then I I can hear the you know the electricity gurus out there going, oh no, but it's not the voltage, it's the amperage. True be that, it is the amperage. So with a billion volts, you have anywhere between 10,000 amps and 200,000 amps. Now, it only lasts for a millisecond, but in that millisecond, it can do an incredible, incredible amount of damage. It could fry everything that you have electronically on the boat. It could blow a a, uh, through hole right out of the boat, and you'll sink right after that, which, by the way, just as an aside, make sure you always have um, a set of those disposable diapers. Um, They're great for boat leaks. And if you get a large hole, you could stuff one in there in the hole, and they'll expand, and they'll, they'll save your boat, just as an aside. Through holes getting blown out of your hull, fried electronics, and if you're not lucky, your butt fried like a turkey. 
the bottom line here is lightning is as unpredictable as love. And when it strikes, it can be the most beautiful phenomenon in nature, but it also can destroy your life. So the best way to protect yourself is, I think, to pray or rub your lucky rabbit's foot or don't be anywhere near where there's unstable warm air which pretty much discounts most of earth at some point in time i mean i'm in southern california right now and we have warm weather all year round and we rarely have we have heat lightning strikes which happen in the desert thank goodness it's the desert and not out here on the pacific ocean but in April, you know, we get what we call the Pineapple Express, which is warm, moist air that comes up from Hawaii and just flows into uh, Los Angeles and Southern California. And, and with that unstable, warm air, we get lightning. So even here, which is lightning is rare, we get lightning. You can get lightning in the Arctic, that's That freaks me out right there. But you can get lightning anywhere. And the best thing to do is try to avoid it, okay? And I know a lot of experts say, and I've read the articles, and they say, oh, yeah, yeah. If you see a front moving towards you, try to avoid it. Well, you and your seven-knot, five-knot, maybe ten-knot boat are going to get out of the way of an storm line of unstable air that stretches 200 miles in front of you and is racing towards you at anywhere between 18 and 25 miles an hour. You're going to get out of the way, right? Yeah. No. Are you going to turn around and run? Uh, no. Okay. You're just going to go through it. You're going to weather it. You're going to prepare for it. So, I mean, some of these people even say, you know, like I mentioned the Faraday oven, which you you have a, oven, a Faraday box. You have an oven in your boat, and, and you can put your electronics in there, and there's this whole thing that the electricity from the lightning bolt won't get in there because it'll go around the square of the Faraday, of the box, of the oven. I, I mean, I think that's a great idea, and I'm excited about actually seeing that work, but I don't think any of us out there that are sailing day in and day out will think about putting their handheld G, uh, VHF radios in the oven in the middle of a squall running across them. And in some cases, you don't even know there's lightning. I mean, I've I've passed through squalls where... You know, the lightning and thunderclaps were, you know, over, you could see them at night. You could see them, you know, like this great light show, but it's over the horizon and you're sitting there and you look up and you say, hey, yeah, sky's pretty good. And five minutes later, there's one cloud and lightning comes down and strikes near you. Scares the shit out of you. The sound is ridiculous. Clap. My experience with lightning comes from experience I had. I was leaving, I left St. Martin and I had it, I was heading up to Newport 
I was going to, I was changing up my routine instead of spending the summer in Europe. Um, I had booked a number of charters up in Newport and I was really excited to go up there. It was just like a little bit of a change, kind of interesting, you know, uh, it was good money and, and I was, you know, real excited to get up there and I couldn't find anybody to go up there with me. So... Um, I kind of scrambled around and the next, I, it was a total accident. Um, I had met this, uh, French girl named Conchita and Conchita was beautiful. She, she was Spanish. Her family was Spanish and they had emigrated from, uh, Spain to France where she was born and grew up. Um, she was a beauty pageant kind of model person. Um, she was, uh, Miss Formula 3, if that makes any sense to anybody. That's the, you know, formula car racing and stuff. And, and, and she sort of, you know, was wonderful. She spoke like five different languages and she was very, very smart and very, very pretty. And I asked her to go with me and I knew it would be complicated to take a foreign, uh, passport person to go from St. Martin on an American vessel you and because she would need a visa. And the only place I could get a visa for her to come, otherwise she would have to leave once we got into the United States, get on a plane and go back to France or St. Martin or whatever the case may be, is to stop and, in Bermuda and get um, a visa. So that was the plan. And it turned out she was wonderful. She loved sailing. She was very athletic. Um, I could be myself. I was relaxed. It was a lot of fun. I was enjoying myself. And, you know, just two people sailing their boat from from St. Martin up to Bermuda and then from Bermuda into uh, New York Harbor. Then we from New York, we, we would go up through Long Island Sound um, up to uh, Newport, Rhode Island. So that was the trip as it was laid out. Um, but lightning sort of hit in a couple of different ways. She sort of struck me in the heart because I just, I adored her and I thought she was just wonderful. And we were having a really, really fantastic time. And and I'm going to do a little thing on on my podcast about love on boats and I know I have a lot of female listeners and I just want to say that I've gone through a process of of blatant misogyny um, into being a little bit more uh, open and understanding and understanding kind of the true rules of relationships and presently I'm in one of the most fantastic relationships I have ever had in my life, and I am extremely happy with it. And um, there's just so much positivity about it and growth that I've that I have experienced. That that this is, you know, this is a great thing to have, and I'm very lucky at this late point in my life to have that happen. But that's the way lightning strikes. You never know. It's very unpredictable. So Kachita and I left St. Martin. Now, 
there's a couple of guys that have said, oh my God, he does this, he did that. How can he not pay attention to this? Look, I'm not your basic anal retentive kind of person. I work very hard. I do attend to details. Um, stuff slips by. I don't mull over it. I just keep on going. Life's too short to spend your, your life on the toilet. That's all I got to say. Life's too short for that. So we left uh, in St. Martin, and um, we had actually a pretty decent sale from St. Martin to Bermuda. Now, the thing about that is, is, you know, they talk about the, you know, the Bermuda Triangle, the Bahama, you know, Triangle. There is a high pressure that sits out there that can make it a little bit difficult um, in terms of wind. It's, it can be, uh, you could go days without any wind out there. Um, this was, I expect it, and I had the fuel to motor through, um, which unfortunately I had to do a lot of motoring on this trip. And how I do that is for cruisers and stuff like that is I try to sail as much as possible, but I always had to put on my engine because I had uh, an auto helm. An auto helm uses a lot of, of electricity. And in order to manage that, um, I try to sail as, as much as possible, but I do turn the engine on for a half hour, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour uh, a day, okay? And sometimes two hours a day, sometimes in the morning and then sometimes in the evening. But I try to time the turning the engine on, not so much according to the clock, but according to if the wind is blowing or not blowing. So if it's in the afternoon and it's dead still, and I can still vividly remember Conchita and I laying on the foredeck and moving along at about two knots and the sails limp and going absolutely nowhere. But the silence and the sense of being in the middle of the ocean was just, you know, just luscious and exotic and wonderful. And I had this new person with me and, and you know, it, it was, a, it was a kind of a romantic situation. I was very pleased. I was very happy. Um, it was a good experience. But during those lulls, that's when I would go and I'd turn the engine on and just drive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you turn it on after floating, um, and going basically nowhere, um, you can, you can get along pretty well. And I should note that for a long time, there was a gentleman that was called, uh, Southbound 2. Um, and he ran a shortwave network for boaters. I don't know if he still is out there. He must be a hundred years old now. He lived in Bermuda and worked for, uh, Noah in Bermuda and was a oceanographic kind of guy and he had a hobby and he would track boats um, in the the Atlantic um, for all the crossings and for the people going from Bermuda and New York back and forth along the coast etc and it was always fun to listen to him and to get on the network to identify yourself and he would he would plot you where you were and it was a an additional sort of safety um, it was a safety net, so to speak. But 
I would implore everybody who's out there sailing to make sure that there's plenty, and, and, and I'll put this on a future podcast, there are plenty of uh, nets out there that you can get hooked up with. Um, they're usually pretty solid weather people and um, give you a good chance. You could know where other boaters are in case there's uh, some kind of uh, uh, distress and you can kind of keep your, you know, you're never alone out there. That's the one thing you want to feel is never being alone. So we managed to get up to Bermuda, and I always love going into Bermuda because they're just so nautical. And Bermuda is like one of these cool places where they've got radar. They see you long before you see them. And they'll start talking to you. They'll identify you. They'll ask how many people are on board, what your life rafts, what your EPIRB number is. You know, they go through, they have a big, big, big list. So getting into Bermuda is, uh, if you go in coming from the western side, you have to come in and go past the island and around the giant reef because the whole island is surrounded by reefs and come around and there's this beautiful lighthouse and you can, you know, hang a louie and you go straight down a channel and that's the same channel as where the uh, cruise ships go on that side. It's a very small channel that goes through it doesn't look like oh my god how can i get through this thing because the pine trees are on the you know both sides of it and but it's big enough for a cruise ship to get through um it's like a little canal and then once you're into it you're into this big open protected harbor and it's it's a great place and please note that i'll do a bermuda specifically do a bermuda um uh show and because it's a great place, and I always want to tell people that that if you live in the northeast of the United States and you want to go cruising down the Caribbean, I highly recommend going to Bermuda first rather than going down the intercoastal. The intercoastal is a lot of fun, but the beat from Florida across the Mona to Hispaniola to Puerto Rico, and then finally getting out to St. Thomas and then the Leeward Islands out there is will kill you. It's People give up. It's really hard sailing. So I always recommend go out, sail to Bermuda, get your blue water experience, and then sail from Bermuda down to um, the Caribbean, and you'll have a, you'll have a nice a nice sail. Big big water, ocean, lovely, beautiful can't miss it'd be a great experience so Kachita and I ended up in in Bermuda we we docked the boat we got in um, we clear customs and they're always very nice in customs there it's one of the nicest places to come in and everybody was cool and um, we decided okay we'll stay we stay for three three days now I was a little bit in a hurry because I had a charter um, that was about two weeks away. And, um, so, you know, we were going to go do the charter and, and, and so we kind of hustled around and, and did little things and ate and, you know, just generally enjoyed. I mean, I think Conchita was just, um, I mean, I couldn't have done anything more to sweep somebody off their feet than, than taking them to Bermuda on a yacht. It was, that was like a done deal right there. Done deal.
So we had a pretty good weather picture and um, we decided to, to leave. So we, we left. Now, one of the things that I always do and is when I'm sailing a long distance is I always drag some sort of fishing line. You know, I put a squib on it or whatever, whatever I have, I, I'm, you know, something shiny, I don't care. I, I'm not really um, a big fisherman, especially when I'm sailing. It kind of is a, it's just something that sits out there and occasionally you'll pick up a Dorado and you'll be very, very happy that you have this beautiful fresh fish on board. Um, coming out uh, past the lighthouse and getting out past all the reefs and stuff, I actually snagged a swordfish that was every bit 14 feet long. It was huge. By the time I got from the helm to the reel to sort of put some brakes on it, almost all the line of the reel was out. And I had about, oh, I don't know, five minutes of fighting this thing, and then the line broke and it disappeared. But it was enough to slow the boat down a couple of knots. It was it was an interesting uh, sensation. And you have to be careful when you do stuff like that because, you know, you don't have a fighting chair. You're not strapped in. Um, you know, you're standing on the on the deck, or you're you're sitting down with your feet, you know, lodged up against the the handrails, and <laughs> you know, pulling something that big in is kind of crazy. But I've I mean I've done a lot of I've gotten a lot of fish coming off the stern like that. A lot of tuna, a lot of dorado, um, some fish that I couldn't tell you what they were, but they were ugly and we didn't eat them. So we were going at a fairly nice clip, about six, seven knots on average. We had a great wind. The weather was great. And then we were about 200 miles from New York. And we were sort of skirting along uh, the Gulf Stream. I didn't, I paid attention to where the eddies were. I didn't want to get caught in those. You know, it's a little lumpy around there, but we're just, you know, we're just on the outside edge, but picking up the current just the same to move us forward. And then this line of thunderstorms comes and it was late afternoon and the sun was, I think, still visible, but it was starting to get kind of dark. And Kachita was actually asleep in the cockpit. And this front, which was, you know, a couple hundred miles long, was just racing towards us. So the first thing, of course, I do is, is I go and I actually took down my Genoa. I figured uh, this, this wind looked a little bit. I could see off with the binoculars, you know, really intense wind. Um, even, even like, uh, little water spouts, um, seemed to be dropping. So I wanted to take in the Genoa. I was going to fly the stasel, okay, which is a smaller, but you know, good weather storm, good weather, um, sail. And I reefed the main. I took one, I reefed it once. So it gave me about three quarters of the sail left up. So I took a quarter off just to be careful. And then my mizzen, 
which I'd had up, I had I just reefed that to its main point, which basically cut the sale in half, as far as as its its um, projection. So I did all of that. Conchita was still asleep in the cockpit. I was feeling fairly comfortable. I said, "Okay, we're just going to roll through this." I didn't see any lightning. I did, however, hear some thunder. But the thunder was over the horizon. It was a good 25 miles away, to say the least. And, you know, I didn't see any lightning coming up. And it's slowly with the clouds, the dark clouds, just started to get darker and darker and darker until it was really dark. And it sort of coincided with the sun going down. The sun was gone. And the darkness started to come over, and it was super dark. I mean... It was so dark that, that, you know, your running lights seem like lighthouse lights. You know, they're just bright. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is dark out here. So anyway, we're going along and, and lightning struck. And when it struck, I, I kind of didn't react. It happened so fast, Okay. And it struck the masthead, okay? At the very top of the masthead, I had wooden masts on my boat. And I'm going to explain this in some detail. So the head stay, okay, had two force stays. It had holes, loops for two force stays. So they could, you could put, I had two force stays on there. And then there's a backstay, okay? And then the backstay turned into a Y halfway and then went to the deck, to the deck chains, in, aft by the mizzen. The lightning didn't strike my antenna, my radio VHF antenna at all, um, which was grounded and went down through the mast to, to the keel bolts and the whole shooting mesh. The lightning struck this stainless. And afterwards, I had taken the head stay off and had to take it to a shop to have it re-engineered because it created a melt. It melted about an inch into the stainless steel. And this is like this is like almost quarter inch stainless steel. And it was melted like somebody, like somebody took an, uh, a torch, an arc torch, and just melted it. From what I could see out of almost my peripheral vision, uh, I glanced up and I heard this smack as I could see the lightning jump out and then follow one of the stays. Like it kind of hit the top of the head stay. Then it came out and it went to the starboard side and it sort of ran that and then it sort of shot back into the mast. After that, I had no idea. The hair on my arms was standing up. Conchita came up out of her sleep from the clap of lightning that happened to this. Like she must have risen up off the, off the cushions like three feet in terror. All right. And... It was over. And then the wind was blowing like you couldn't believe. Okay, it was like super squall. I said, okay, we're really good. Well, here's the thing. All the electronics were down. And then I heard a crack. 
the electricity from the lightning bolt had traveled down the wood mast through the resinol. Resinol is the glue that held the mast together. Okay? And it went down as far as the scarf at the top. So the scarf is about, oh, let's say 10 feet from the top of the mast. There's a scarf there, and then it goes down to, you know, almost you know, three, four feet above, there's another scarf, right? And it's a rectangle, wooden rectangle made of fur. And it's all glued together. It's very beautiful. And it's glued together with resinol. The lightning had melted, cooked the resinol. And then with the stress from the wind on the mast, it caused the, it caused the mast to flex and the wood to crack. So I had this big crack. It was about a foot and a half above the scarf, like around the scarf, part of the scarf, around the scarf, and up the side on the port side. The starboard side was okay. But I can't, you know, the mast is like, oh, shit, I can't. This thing goes, it will fall apart. I don't, you know, I didn't understand, and I didn't know what the mast how how what kind of shape the mast was in you know i am you can with a wood mast it, it could look fantastic on the outside but it, there may be like some rot or something in the inside which you can't see and i you know i just couldn't predict i thought the masts were actually in very very good shape and i'd had surveyors tell me they thought the mast was in good shape and i had been up there with a hammer to listen you know tap 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 listen to it to see how to see how it all worked and it sounded it sounded good but still that little notion of ooh this could this could be a bad situation so i was okay with the staysail because the staysail head stay is attached to the mast below this cracked scarf so i was okay with that sail the mizzen was okay i had to reef the main down to its bottom storm reef position which I did. I wanted to put as little pressure on the mast as possible. So every bit of pressure point was underneath the mast. Now that night, I had seen the crack all the way up the mast um, by using a high-powered flashlight and binoculars. So I would sit there with the binoculars and I would study the mast and I figured out what it was. That's where that's what the situation for the mast was. It was basically dire. So I said, okay, I'm gonna start. Let's see if I can start the engine because I had no power, I had no lights, I had nothing. Try to turn it on, nothing, zero, not even click, 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 nothing. So I went down below and started to check out what had happened with the electricity, and here's what happened. I had eight 8D batteries, gel batteries. All eight batteries were dead. The electricity had just drained them all. The cable going from the batteries to the grounding on the engine and the starter battery, which was beside the engine and the starter, the cable was burnt. 
literally it was a half inch cable burnt just right at the connection to the engine block the starter itself was literally melted inside everything that was inside was just now one solid block of metal wasn't a starter anymore remarkably the solenoid to start the starter was untouched how did that i don't ask me okay so i had no engine i had no way of starting the engine well i suppose i did i could crank the engine hand crank the engine um i was never very successful i tried it and i wasn't successful at hand cranking the engine there just wasn't any electricity in the boat, bottom line. So I put everything together and thought to myself, okay, I'm just going to have to sail this sucker into New York Harbor. I mean, sailors have done it for thousands of years. You know, I can do it. I can sail it in. Um, and I had a TV set that I had just bought. And I hadn't installed it because I was going to do a whole, you know, clever installation piece. And I was sort of waiting until I got to the States to to go ahead and tackle that particular project. So I had gotten a deal on this TV set. So I had it sitting in a box. It wasn't attached to anything. And later when I went to put it together, put you know to turn it on and look at it, I found out that the entire inside of the television set was also completely melted. That is what electricity can do. It sort of followed along the cables. It's kind of followed along the grounding it kind of did this and it kind of did that basically it did what it wanted to do and there's no predicting that whatsoever so Conchita and I have pretty much uh, had this you know shocking adventure to use a little bit of a pun and we managed to get to New York City um, we were going slow because I had to have everything reefed out. I, I didn't want to take the chance of putting up a bigger sail. I had no engine, so I had to work the tides. I had to, you know, work the wind. And I literally sailed all the way up until about the Verrazano Bridge. And then when you're going into New York Harbor, you know, the Verrazano and just to the uh, starboard side of Verrazano, there's a little bay. I think it's called Dead Man's Bay or something like that. Wreckage Bay, Pirate Bay, whatever. I can't remember the, the actual name of it. But anyway, we couldn't fight the tide. So we ended up literally going backwards. And I anchored in that bay and spent the night. The next morning, Conchita and I woke up to this very, very heavy fog. We had, the, we had the tide going. The river was out, so we decided we're going to take this. Brought up the anchor literally by hand because I had no power. Okay. Then we started, this, we started to move with the current. We got out. I sailed off, literally sailed off the anchor, pulled it up myself. We missed one of the pilings for the Verrazano Bridge by about 10 feet. We didn't have that much control, 
but we had enough to get through. There was no, there was a light, heavy, a heavy, what I call heavy light wind, which is full of moisture, which will keep your sails full and will push you, but it may only register as two to three knots. But because the air is so dense, um, that two to three knots gives you a little extra push. So we started to sail up, sail up, and we're going up. And there's a lot of traffic out there. And I, I had taken my flashlight and I was flashing it on the sail. I was trying to, you know, make myself known. I was ringing my bell. I was using my foghorn. I was doing everything to, to alert people around me. One of the ferries blew past me. Um, he had seen me and he, the Staten Island ferry, and he just blew past me. And it was like, oh, yeah, I'm not really cool with all this. This is not going to be fun. And then for Conchita, this experience, of course, she's she's just, you know, she doesn't understand what the danger is. She doesn't understand, you know, the whole thing. She's just excited because she's going to be in New York for the first time. And then as we're going, the fog lifts and the sun peeks through. And her first look of New York was trade centers, World Trade Center at the time, illuminated with this sunlight. And the whole, you know, Southport, you know, all of Manhattan was sitting there illuminated. And then she turned her head and I said, hey, look over here. And she turned and she looked. And there was the Statue of Liberty, all with fog all around us, completely enveloped but this brilliant sunlight peeking through the clouds and the fog to illuminate all of Manhattan. And if I could have taken a picture at that time, I would have. Um, but just the mental images you, you could probably get was just amazing. So I was going to go to Liberty Landing Marina. And now that's by the Statue of Liberty. And Liberty Landing Marina is um, used to be where... Uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad would bring their barges in and the railroad cars would be parked on the barges then the barges would drag them across to Manhattan and then the train would be reassembled and then they would take people on their way. And they used to have coal barges come through too when they weren't having like the regular trains. And this was before um, they built a tunnel. So it's a kind of nice place. It's a cute place. And it's, you know, it's, it's on the Jersey side. So in order to get in there, I had to sail. I wanted, to, I couldn't just sail up with the tide and sail in there. Um, it just, I made one attempt and it just, I wasn't, I wasn't able to, um, to get in there because it was like this eddy that was keeping me from contrary eddy that was keeping me from going in through this chute or canal into where the marina was. The marina was in the back. It was not very long, but it still I just couldn't get in there. So I decided to sail up the river. I sailed all the way up the river as far as I could go. And I got, I guess, you know, I probably got up you know, to 80th street or something like that. And then I turned around and I came down as soon as the tide had changed. So I'm kind of, I've got speed. And as I've said before, when you've got speed, your rudder is going to help you. 
really steer precisely. So I came down. I had already, I had my VHF radio, which, by the way, I did not keep in an oven. Um, the VHF radio was just sitting where it normally sat during this lightning strike episode. And I just kept going. You know, it worked fine. So I called the uh, Liberty Landing Marina and I got the dock master and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got. I said, look, I, I don't have an engine. I'm, you know, I've got this. I've got that. And, you know, I'm sailing in. And the guy goes, you're sailing in? How can you be sailing in? Nobody's ever sailed in here before. And this whole thing. And he was telling me how I couldn't do it and that there was insurance and there were boats around. And I said, I'm coming in. So we came right down. We got in the channel. There were a few boats that, you know, boaters just give people away. You know, don't don't be jerks. So we sort of zoom in, and there is the dock. And thank goodness it was nice long dock. It was on the port side. So I had Conchita to do this. This is this is the 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 way to do these things okay is that i want a conchita to drop the sails just drop them don't don't flake them don't tie them up just drop them okay and i wanted her to 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 drop the staysail okay and then to go up to the staysail and drop the main and i had already dropped i had i was standing by the mizzen so i was waiting to drop that so as we're coming up we're sailing up and now i'm going to go onto the dock Okay, and it's side two. All right, so we're getting closer. We're getting closer. I tell her, go ahead and drop. And we've got good way. We've probably got two or three knots of way. So, you know, this is a pretty tricky thing. I lassoed the cleat. I got a line around it. Okay, tied it off. And you ask, well, where was the dock master? Well, the dock master was standing on the other side of the marina at a slip that he was going to put us in to take our lines. Not fathoming the idea that I was going to sail all the way around through the marina um, and put the slip in. I had no engine, and he kind of didn't grasp that concept. So I got the line around the cleat, tied it off real fast, and I'm about 25 feet from the dock, well, boom, that that line tightened up, okay, and just pulled me right close to the dock. Conchita, you know, I jumped off the boat. Conchita got me a bow line. I tied up the stern line. I put on my springs to tie it all around. And this another boater came out. It was a friend of ours named Doctor. He was a doctor, um, and I think it was Dr. Rob, we call them. And he came out and he said, that was amazing. Where are you guys coming from? And all the rest of them were going through the whole thing. Yeah, we came in. We got struck by lightning. That's why we had no engine. We were doing this. And then the doc master comes running up. He says, oh, my God, what are you doing here? You can't be here because Teddy Kennedy and his boat is coming here today. I said, I'm good friends with Teddy Kennedy. Don't worry about it. He'll understand. And the doc master was like totally flabbergasted and disappeared. So anyway, Dr. Rob said, hey, what can I do for you? Well, at the time, um, I smoked, and Conchita smoked. Um, and we looked at him and said, do you have any cigarettes? And so that was that was our first thing. So we all had to sit and smoke some cigarettes, and, and, and Dr. Rob was super nice about taking us 
to a package store and we we got some booze and some beer and you know some cigarettes and some food because you know we had we had actually taken an extra six days on the trip between Bermuda and New York um, because of the sale. I mean, that 200 miles, we were making 25 miles a day. We weren't getting anywhere, and there was nothing we could do about it. We just had to sail that way. But it made me realize what it was like for the sailors in the 17th and 18th century. You know, and we kind of think of them just sort of splitting along and going as fast as possible to all their sails up and this, that, and other thing. There's a lot of times when you go sailing, there's no wind. And you're just sort of languishing. But that's sailing. You know, that's what you get. You know, I think we're spoiled. We get an engine, we can turn it on. But it's not until you don't have an engine that you realize that, you know, you really are at the... At the um, the will of the wind. So anyway, that's what we did. We got there. I eventually um, took the boat up to Connecticut. Um, I had the mast uh, taken off uh, and repaired. It turns out there was no rot. The mast was, was in perfect shape. And everything I had done had actually helped it. And I, I should mention that I did make a, a quick repair under under underway. During our only floating along at 25 miles a day, I had uh, some wood, um, like one by sixes, I guess it was, or, you know, quarter inch, quarter inch by six inch wide planks. I cut them up and I literally screwed them into the mast. Then I, uh, at the scarf, where the scarf was, I literally, you know, built this fat box around it, screwed them in. Um, I had some leather that I wrapped um, the whole thing in and tightened up the leather. And then I took um, some Spectraline. I had like 316 Spectraline, really tiny stuff. And I wrapped the whole thing in this Spectraline and then, then, then used like you would, you know, like you would use a tourniquet, right? You know, where you would turn it to tighten the, the bandage around so there wouldn't be any bleeding. I did that and I tightened it. And I, so it was kind of this weird sort of structural thing. And, but I don't know how much it helped. I don't know if it actually helped at all, but you know, a jury rigged it and, and it, it worked. Um, you know, you do what you, what you do, you do what you have to do. So that leads us back to the whole idea. If anybody tells you that they're an expert on lightning, you know, walk away from them. There is no expert. The best things you can do is, yes, go ahead and get your boat correctly grounded. It's probably going to have more effect when you're sitting in the marina um, through the electricity that bounces in and out of boats the way it is today. But in any case, it'll help if that happens. But just do it because... You don't want the insurance adjuster to come and say, uh, "Did you? The, what do you have to protect yourself from lightning and not have anything? Make sure you have it. I mean, it may work. It may not work. It's, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. I don't think there's anything predictable about it whatsoever. The other thing is when you get these warm weather mountainous anvil-like clouds that are coming towards you and there's lightning running all that, 
try to avoid them. But if you can't avoid them, prepare your boat for the worst. Get everything reefed down. You know, don't worry about getting anywhere. Just just try to weather the storm as much as possible. Turn all your electronics off, everything, all the electricity off. You'll be okay, you know, because you've got a one in one thousandth chance of that lightning hitting your boat. And those are better odds than you get in Vegas, but sometimes people can actually hit the jackpot in Vegas. So anyway, thank you. Wow, that was a really interesting story. What was it like? What was going through your mind uh, when that happened? Well, it's um, it was a weird thing because, uh, you know, first there's the physical thing that goes on. You know, your, the ar- your hair stands up on your arms and you feel this sort of tingle all about you. And, you know, you've seen the lightning jump around your boat and, and it's done in just a second it's all done and the clap of course and um, the whole boat sort of shook in a way but it i want to say it shook but it really didn't shake but it felt like it was shaking and um you know i still had to deal with the the squall that we were in um and it was night so it was you know the thing about disasters in boats in general when you have bad weather or lightning like I did or any other sort of best storm, it just doesn't stop after you have a major calamity. Um, Many years before that, I was actually knocked down um, off the coast of Baja um, from a tropical storm. And, um, you know, we popped back up pretty fast. And then suddenly we were knocked back down again. And then we popped back up again. And this went on trying to get the boat into the right position with waves coming over us. Um, it probably went on for a good half hour, 45 minutes until we finally got everything right it and got the boat, um, you know, uh, resting correctly in the water without the, all the water covering it. So yeah, it's, these are just little incidences that happen and describe, but th- there's a, a longer narrative as far as dealing with storms. That, that take place. So what do we have planned for next week? Next week, I'm going to talk about um, Bermuda. And uh, I love Bermuda. Bermuda is just a really cool place. And it's a great place to sail. It's a great place. It's got a great nautical history. Um, but uh, there's... I did a delivery once from New York City to Bermuda in which uh, we had to stay hoved to because of the weather for about three days. And it was a rough hove too. We really got pounded. That'd be a good story. We can talk a little, little bit about, you know, how one weathers the storm, so to speak. But, you know, on the bright side, Bermuda is just a, a, a wonderful place and very nautical and very, you know, very inviting and safety. And it's a cool place to go. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. 
our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twang. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.